Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Just a couple of weeks ago on AJC Passport, we talked about the worrying CNN survey on European anti-Semitism with one of the architects of that survey, Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent, and Simone Rodin, the Paris-based director of AJC Europe. Now, a new comprehensive study is out on the very same topic but this time interviewing Jews specifically about their experiences with anti-Semitism. The European Union's Agency for Fundamental Rights, or FRA, polled 16,500 Jews in 12 EU member states and found that 70% believe that their governments do not effectively combat anti-Semitism. 85% say anti-Semitism is a serious problem. 38% have considered emigrating because they no longer feel safe as Jews in the country where they live. And tragically, 52% say they do not even bother to report anti-Semitic attacks because, in their view, nothing will change. Joining us now to discuss the results of this survey is Katerina von Schnurbein, the coordinator on combating anti-Semitism for the European Commission, which is basically the executive branch of the European Union. Katerina has been a powerful voice, speaking out on the need to address rising anti-Semitism across Europe. Katerina, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, this latest survey is a follow-up to a survey from five years ago. It's worrying enough to look at this 2018 survey in isolation, but can you tell us a bit about the trend lines? Are things getting better or worse? Well, unfortunately, in general, we see a trend towards the perception to more anti-Semitism across EU member states, maybe with the exception of Hungary, where um, it seems that there is less of a security threat uh, perceived. However, the contentment with the action of the government is among the worst across the member states that were asked. So definitely we see a negative trend, and this is for Europe as a whole very worrying. Should these results and the negative trend that you point to, should they be surprising to European leaders? Well, we know from our contacts with the Jewish communities, and this has been one of my main responsibilities, is to liaise closely with uh, Jewish communities across Europe and uh, listen to their concerns and also to their ideas. Um, We know from these encounters that the perception of anti-Semitism is increasing. We also know that in the statistics there is an increase of incidents, which to some extent is due to better recording, but it is also uh, due to the fact that there are simply probably more physical uh, incidents happening and more insults also happening. Um, So I think, you know, it doesn't come as a surprise, but it is, I think, shocking to see it black on white and to actually have the facts that go with a certain perception and feeling that we already had. 
One thing that I thought was interesting from the study was that Denmark was the country where the Jewish population was the least concerned about anti-Semitism out of all the countries surveyed. And one of the reasons I thought that was interesting is because I'm sure you and I both know the name Don Uzan, who was the Danish Jew who was killed mm. uh, when he was working as a volunteer security guard for a synagogue. I think there was a, a bat mitzvah and the, yeah. the synagogue was attacked. Um, is there something that Denmark is doing right that has the Jewish community less concerned? Or is this just kind of a, a weird blip? I think following the uh, tragic uh, killing of Dan Uzan, a lot has been done in terms of security. And we know that security as such is the number one concern of European Jews when it comes to questioning their future in Europe. So I think that change certainly has been perceived in a positive way. Also, I personally was actually in Copenhagen recently where there was the commemoration of the saving of Danish Jews in 1943, mm -hmm. about 8,000 Jews that were saved to Sweden at the time right. by civil society. So this has a certain tradition, and I think it was also very visible how much Danish Jews are simply part of general society. Yeah, I can tell you, even growing up here in America, that's a story, what Denmark did to save yeah. the, the Jewish community in the Holocaust. That's a story that I learned here as well. Katarina, you, the creation of your job and your work in this job are all a part of the solution to this problem. I, I know that AJC is, is so glad to have you as a, a friend in Europe. What are the other parts of the solution? What kind of action do you think EU member states can and should be taking? Now, there has been a lot happening actually in the last three years um, as we increasingly see uh, the issues around anti-Semitism clearer. One most recent and probably most significant decision has been by the 28 EU member states, a declaration that was passed on the 6th of December um, on anti-Semitism, which mm -hmm. covers a wide range of policies from having a common approach with regards to security of Jewish communities and Jewish institutions to looking into education, into uh, finding better ways, new ways of uh, Holocaust remembrance. We had the, uh, the CNN results recently where a third of people don't even know properly anymore what the Holocaust was about. So this is something that we think really needs to continue to be at the heart of the European project. Um, this also looks into better data collection, because if you don't make it visible, it's very difficult to actually get it on the political agenda. And in that connection, what is also significant is that the definition on anti-Semitism that was uh, adopted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, the IRA, was suggested for member states to endorse as a useful non-legally binding tool in education and training. And that is really a big step forward because, as you may know, this definition looks and explains the different forms of modern anti-Semitism that we see today. And it is very important to acknowledge all of them. And the definition also talks about where the red lines are crossed between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. So all of these are very important uh, aspects of this declaration. It was passed by unanimity, and that means that the member states have signed up to really changing policies where necessary and where appropriate in their own contexts. 
And we will certainly here at the European Commission follow this up with member states and ensure that uh, change will happen uh, on the ground. We've also applied this definition ourselves here for our policies and also our internal trainings. And also with regards to Holocaust remembrance, uh, the European uh, Union has recently acquired permanent international partner status with the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which is another significant uh, political sign, but also gives us the possibility to work closely with the most important or one of the most important international organizations on the memory of the Shoah. One of the things that you just mentioned was uh, about the importance of, uh, of education around the Holocaust toward uh, addressing this this problem. But we hear widespread reports from Germany, for example, of migrant children from Muslim countries who heckle as their teachers teach about the Holocaust or who refuse to listen and learn about the country's special relationship with Israel. You know, we, we hear the same thing from France and from elsewhere. Um, education is not the entire solution to this problem, as you just enumerated, but how can it even be a part of the answer if young people are refusing to learn? Well, I think that it is important, first of all, to empower the teachers because they are faced in multicultural classrooms with uh, a lot of problems that used to be carried, let's say, more by society at large. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a lot of the responsibility is now um, put upon uh, the schools. And I think it is important uh, not to give up, but to to look into what is necessary to ensure that teachers have the right answers when they want to teach about the Holocaust and then a hand goes up and says, but in Gaza, Israel is doing the same. They need to have, be prepared because these are very delicate uh, issues. And if you are not schooled and trained, uh, then it's very difficult to answer. Then we also have the issue that not only history teachers need to be aware of this, but, you know, the sports teacher needs to be able to rebuke an anti-Semitic remark in mm -hmm. the courtyard. Yeah. So these kind of things are very important, but they are in the remit of the EU member states. So it's important to... Uh, ensure that this change actually happens where the competence is for it to change. We will support it and we do support it. Um, there are also different guidance tools and um, projects and, you know, there, there are many things that we can, for example, fund. But to, to make change happen, it, is, it has to be the political will of the member states. And with this declaration, uh, they have expressed that will, and so now it's a good possibility to hold them accountable to what they have signed up. There's also a lot of talk about uh, focusing on the second generation, that the first generation who come to Europe may not fully acculturate, but that their kids will be, you know, <laughs> true mm -hmm. Germans or, or true Frenchmen or, or true Danes or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever, whatever that, you know, really means in, in this globalized world that we live in today. But isn't that too much of a gamble? Doesn't there need to be more effort put into helping bring in people in, in the first generation and, and not just bring them in physically, but really help absorb them into the society that they are joining? Yes, I think that it is, in fact, you know, we are in a situation where we are looking at the third generation or yeah. even the fourth. Yeah. So while we also had now an influx in 2015 and, uh, and uh, 16 uh, of a lot of newcomers, and of course there need to be 
integration strategies. And by the way, um, this is also part of the declaration to include the knowledge about Jewish life into integration uh, courses. So this concerns the newcomers, but indeed when it comes to Europe-born citizens and young people, it is it's very important to target them. And, and the, the German federal president has uh, recently said that if you want to find a home in Germany, and I think it's also true for Europe as a whole, you can't say this is your history, not mine. And I think that's very true, but it needs to be related in a way that they can actually understand it, which means, for example, and I know this from people who work among migrant community or, let's say, among Europeans with migrant background, that it usually starts at acknowledging their own discriminations, the discriminations they face, and then they can much easier relate to other forms of victimhood, and they can also see to what discrimination has led to hatred and racism has led to in the past, and, you know, how a slippery slope it can be. So I think, you know, it's also a question of how we address uh, this issue, but generally there is definitely the acknowledgement that something needs to happen. One thing that we're grappling with here in America um, is that um, a lot of people rush to point out anti-Semitism where it exists uh, on the other side of the political aisle. Um, <laughs> for for That's example, case, I and, think everywhere. Yeah. Well. Well. <laughs> here we here we uh, the the right accuses the Muslims and the left accuses the right. This is how the circle goes at the moment. <laughs> so we at AJC actually we talk of of anti-Semitism as a three-headed monster um, that both far ends of the political spectrum, uh, the far right and the far left, are sources of anti-Semitism. In some cases, you know, almost coming together on that yeah. one odious issue. And it's impossible to ignore that in Europe in recent years, every Jew who was killed as a Jew was killed by a Muslim jihadist. So those are the three sources, the far right that is often so easy to identify and so easy to condemn because it uses language that um, yeah. that was you know reminiscent of Nazi Germany or, or other fascists. Um, the far left, which is much trickier because you know it often cloaks itself as just criticism of Israel or just anti-Zionism. And of course, um, you know, anti-Semitism in certain corners of the Muslim community, which is very impolitic to to point out. Do you think that Europe understands that anti-Semitism is a three-headed monster? Well, first of all, I would like to add one more head. Oh, no. Basically, <laughs> the, the conspiracy theories and the anti-Semitism that has grown into the middle of society, which is increasingly frequent now and very difficult to dismantle because it is in the middle and, you know, for, I give you an example, which is when a Jewish boy was harassed by his Muslim uh, fellow students at school and the parents went to the headmaster and the headmaster just shrugged his shoulder and said, well, you know, there's a Middle East conflict going on. No wonder this plays out here. Hmm. So it's this kind of middle of society, um, mis total misunderstanding of what antisemitism is today that I think is in addition to um, the, the far ends of the political spectrum and also the antisemitism coming from within the uh, Muslim community. And I think it's important, I mean, this declaration that we signed and the IRA definition uh, that uh, it 
recommends to the member states is important in recognizing all these forms of anti-Semitism. And one shouldn't make a mistake. It's true that all the most lethal attacks all have been committed by Islamist jihadists. But when it comes to anti-Semitic prejudices that are uh, prevalent in the Muslim community, also to those who are not radicalized or not extremists, what do they see when they look around? And that's, I think, an uh, additional problem that they see on the right uh, and far right, Holocaust trivialization and old racist anti-Semitism, and then they see on the left uh, Israel bias and you know, it fits their worldview. So while it is a, a real issue, very difficult to tackle, I think it's important to continuously ensure that we tackle all of these different aspects at the same time and don't neglect one side because we focus too much on, on the other. So we have, to, we have to ensure that we tackle all of these forms and uh, find appropriate ways also. Uh, to to tackle them. But of course, there is also, let's say, with regards to the extremists, there is a clear security risk and security threat that needs to be taken into account. And that is, of course, on the counterterrorism scale that is in a different category. Most of our listeners here at AJC Passport are Americans. Most of the supporters of AJC are based here in America. What kind of support do you think that Americans can offer Europe to help deal with this problem? Well, I think something that we can learn from the U.S. is the way civil society reacts to anti-Semitism still. I think there is also a change ongoing probably in the U.S., but the fact that when someone makes an anti-Semitic remark, there is a strong reaction from within civil society is something that we need to increase here in Europe again. I see it also in the, let's say, political rhetorics uh, rhetorics that are not being counteracted when someone makes an anti-Semitic remark or in a sports club or in in school. There is not enough uh, of counter-speech when someone makes an anti-Semitic remark. And I think um, civil society in the U.S. in that sense is still uh, more schooled to do that. Now, Katerina, my last question is looking ahead to the upcoming European elections in May of 2019. I'm sure that most of my listeners are not experts in EU politics. I certainly am not. But I understand that with a new European parliament, there will also be a new set of European commissioners. The biggest question that I have is, what happens to this job? Will there definitely be a uh, coordinator on combating anti-Semitism in the next European government? Well, how the uh, structural setup will be, I don't know. But certainly there will be a strong commitment from the side of the European Commission to fight anti-Semitism. How this will be done in concrete terms and then how this office also will be embedded in the structures is not clear and is up to the next president of the European Commission. Well, I certainly hope that you are able to continue this very, very important work. Katerina, thank you so much for all that you do in Europe and for your time with us today. Thank you very much. Joining us now, just back from extensive meetings across Europe, is AJC CEO, David Harris.
David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. This new FRA report on anti-Semitism follows very quickly after the CNN report from just a few weeks ago. Last week, you were in Europe. Has this one-two punch of studies had a kind of scared straight effect in the halls of power? I think the the two studies have, and I have to add, at long last. Hmm. It's taken way too long, I think, for many in Europe to wake up to the reality of the problem. Uh, AJC began to see this uh, in the years 2000, 2001. And it's no exaggeration to say, Sefi, that for the last 17 to 18 years, we have had hundreds, maybe more meetings with European leaders as friends of Europe, trying to wake them up to the growing problem, trying to explain to them that this is about Jews, but not only about Jews. This is about Europe and Europe's future. I think this one-two punch of the CNN study, followed by the European Union's own study, I think may have finally done the trick of waking people up. Germany, in particular, has taken the approach of appointing officials on both the federal and the state level, whose particular portfolio it is just to to combat anti-Semitism. Is that a positive development? Is that something that we would want to see replicated across Europe? Or put another way, what will work to fight this? Well, first of all, um, I think it is positive. I hope it's positive because, in fact, in 2015, uh, AJC held a European-wide meeting in Brussels to focus on the problem and develop strategies. Out of that meeting came an eight-point, if you will, business plan by AJC. And one of the eight points was that countries should designate someone at the highest level who reports directly to the government uh, in order to focus on the issue of anti-Semitism. Felix Klein, that person in Germany to whom you were referring at the federal level, actually publicly attributes his job to the efforts of AJC. Mm. So we have a stake in his success, obviously. France, too, now has a second, what, what they call interministerial representative, who brings together all the various ministries of the government in order to try and marshal their forces to deal with anti-Semitism. Uh, and other countries may follow. The European Union itself, by the way, also has a person, Katharina von Schnurbein, with whom AJC works very closely. Who's actually your co-star in this episode. Good. <laughs> so you have another one-two punch. <laughs> uh, as to the other part of your question, what works, uh, that's a much larger issue and at this point in time, uh, a very difficult issue to answer. Why? Because we're well into the problem. The problem has grown uh, and the sources of the problem are diverse. So now that European countries have woken up, thankfully, finally, they're realizing the magnitude of the problem as illustrated by these two studies. I mean, 95% of the Jews of France expressed in the uh, EU's own study a very high or fairly high degree of concern about anti-Semitism. 38% of the Jews queried in that study, and there were 16,000 or more people who were questioned by the EU, 38% said they're thinking about leaving Europe or leaving their own country at least because of safety and security reasons. These are staggering numbers. And so how to deal with them is not just an off-the-shelf or overnight kind of response. It takes a lot more than that. I was also really struck by the, the sheer number of people that the EU surveyed in this latest study. 16,000, I think there are only 1.4 million Jews in Europe. So this is something right around 1% of all the Jews on the continent who they surveyed, you know, there's got to be a pretty small margin of error once you're sampling that large of a subgroup. 
you were just in Europe, as I mentioned, but another AJC delegation was in the Arabian Gulf, in Bahrain, in Oman, and in the UAE. There's quite a contrast, I think, between the news that Dubai's small Jewish community is taking its first tentative steps out of the shadows, and there was this great article about their synagogue, their community center, and the reports of increased anti-Semitism in Europe. Once, I think we thought of democracy as the great guarantor of safety for Jews around the world, but these two stories tell a slightly different narrative. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, yes, we had a group in the Arabian Gulf, and in fact, that group celebrated Shabbat in Dubai with the local Jewish community, and it's a very interesting and diverse Jewish community made up of people from a fair number of countries, some of whom are are resident there, others of whom are transient. And by the way, at that Shabbat dinner, members of the local community thanked AJC because they believe that it was our efforts over many years that helped give confidence to the government to allow this unprecedented new center to emerge, Jewish center to emerge. I have to add, Bahrain has a tiny Jewish community, but it's always lived quite openly. And one of the members, I think the community may be no more than 40 people or so, but one of those members was actually Bahrain's ambassador to the United States for a number of years. And Oman, which you also mentioned, is a country that not only AJC visits regularly, but Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel just visited. It was not a clandestine visit. It was open. It was covered in the media. And one of the concrete outcomes which has been announced is that Israeli airspace, I'm sorry, Omani (laughs) Omani airspace will now be open to Israeli planes, uh, which will cut the time for travel between Israel and elsewhere, saving a lot of money and hours and all the rest. So there are a few positive trends there. Now, can we make the leap that you suggest that maybe democracy is overrated? I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I still prefer democracy to autocracy, but by any stretch of the imagination. And the experience across Europe is not uniform. The experience across Europe depends on the country. For example, in the Fundamental Rights Agency study of the EU, of these 16,000 Jews, 12 countries were covered. Uh, There was a ranking. The greatest concern was in France. The lowest concern was in Denmark. That's not to say that every country doesn't have its issues. It does. Denmark included where there was an attack on a synagogue not that long ago, and a volunteer guard was murdered by a terrorist, by a jihadist. But I'd rather begin by working with democracy and figure out how to deal with the system than begin by working with autocracy any day of the week. David, so much of your important work is done by actually traveling to the halls of power around the world. And unfortunately, so few of our listeners are able to go with you. So I was hoping that we could take a whirlwind tour now around the world and and just I'll come at you with a few rapid fire (laughs) questions. How does that sound? Uh, A little frightening. (laughs) So let's first go to France, where a lot of the media reports around these yellow vest protests have focused on what they mean for the future of Macron's presidency or, or even centered on on climate change, since the impetus of the rioting was this new gas tax, which was seen as an environmentally friendly measure. Uh, But there have been a few reports, mostly in, in Jewish media, about signs and slogans saying that Macron is a puppet of the Jews or, or even using more offensive language to talk about that. Are you worried about anti-Semitism spilling out into this ongoing unrest? Well, first of all, if your question begins with, am I worried about anti-Semitism, <laughs> even as you continue, my answer is formed. 
Uh, and the answer is, is always going to be yes. Uh, obviously, when 95% of the Jews of France are already concerned about anti-Semitism, even before the Yellow Vest protests, if anything, that level of concern is only going to grow, not necessarily because the Yellow Vest movement begins by targeting Jews, but because Whenever instability, uncertainty, unpredictability enters into democratic societies, whenever protest movements begin, whenever populist movements take over, then Jews have reason to worry because those movements, even if they begin by focusing on a diesel tax or, or pension reform, can very quickly become taken over or manipulated by those with other agendas. I mean, I've seen it over decades. I've seen it here in the United States. I've seen it with the women's movement, for example, here in the United States. So it's always risky. The larger issue, Sefi, is France is one of the major countries in the world. When it's suffering this kind of uncertainty and violence, we all have reason for concern. Let's uh, cross the English Channel and turn to the United Kingdom, where Theresa May is still uh, the prime minister, uh, but her hold on power is very tenuous. She still has to somehow negotiate Brexit. Meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the Labour Party, and he could end up as prime minister literally any day. Should that be concerning? Oh, absolutely. And this is one we've been um, shouting from the rooftops about. Uh, We haven't kept quiet about that one. Uh, Given the fact that Theresa May herself is is smack in the middle of this highly controversial Brexit story where no one is happy in the country, neither those who voted for Brexit who think she's too weak, nor those who voted to remain who think that she's out on a limb. So Jeremy Corbyn not only could become prime minister, I'd go a step further and I'd say he could become the accidental prime minister in a sense, meaning that no one begins the morning with the intention of making him prime minister, but a set of events occurs within the UK or between the UK and Brussels, and suddenly you have snap elections and people are voting against the current government more than they're voting for Jeremy Corbyn. But lo and behold, a far-left, anti-Zionist, many say anti-Semitic person will become the prime minister of a great country. 38 to 40 percent of British Jews in an earlier survey said that if Jeremy Corbyn became prime minister, they would seriously think about leaving the country. And we'll head east for our final stop. Many have been quick to judge Austria and to condemn the conservative chancellor, the 32-year-old wunderkind Sebastian Kurz, for including the far-right Austrian Freedom Party in his governing coalition. But Kurtz has turned into a leader in the fight against anti-Semitism among European heads of state. Was the world too quick to judge Sebastian Kurtz? Well, I think that this, this is one of those moral dilemmas of which we're going to see more and more, Sefi, and not just in Austria. As politics kind of unravels in its traditional sense, we're going to see more odd coalitions, uh, Italy being another example of a very odd coalition today, the polarization in America being exhibit A for, uh, for all of this. But Sebastian Kurtz found himself in a very difficult position. He would have preferred to avoid the far-right party to form his coalition, but he needed a partner. And both he and the other mainstream party, the Social Democratic Party, had both agreed they would not work together again. In fact, after the election, there are reports that the left of center party, oddly enough, tried to do an end run and Mm. form a governing coalition with the far-right party. Mm. Strange as that may sound, that didn't work out. So we have this government. There were unsavory elements. AJC does not meet with members of the Freedom Party in the government. On the other hand, Sebastian Kurtz has been 
quite uh, powerful in his not only approach to anti-Semitism and, yes, anti-Zionism, and he has linked the two among the first European leaders, but also in deepening relations with Israel. We hosted him at the AJC Global Forum in June. Anyone who was in that audience, and we had 2,500 people, I think was stunned to hear a young Austrian leader speak about Israel in the way he did, condemn anti-Semitism the way he did, or accept Austrian historical responsibility. That was quite a moment. Uh, I won't soon forget it. David, thank you for taking this world tour with us, and thank you for your insights. My pleasure, Sefi. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Bobsledding. Good for the Jews? You know the movie Cool Runnings? That timeless classic based on the true story of the Jamaican bobsled team competing at the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary? They've got nothing on this. Just a couple of weeks ago, two Americans with Israeli citizenship who didn't previously know each other met for the first time in Lake Placid, New York, to compete for Team Israel in the North American Cup bobsled competition. One, Chaim Rice, is in his 40s and had never before been in a bobsled. The other, Dave Nichols, in his 50s and, as a result of spinal damage from a skiing accident 15 years ago, uses a wheelchair to get around. Nichols has been bobsledding for much of the time he's been wheelchair-bound, but only ever in Paralympic competitions. With just two test runs to their name, and they crashed on one of them and couldn't finish as Nichols broke three fingers, they took to the track for the competition. And they didn't win. They didn't even place, but they did finish, coming in 11th out of 13 teams. Now, there's no gold medal moment for Team Israel, at least not yet, but Nichols and Reis have a new dream, qualifying for the World Cup on their way to an Olympic berth. To paraphrase that timeless winter classic, Israel, they have a bobsled team. And that is good for the Jews. The global work of AJC, including AJC Passport, is made possible by supporters and friends like you. Make your year-end gift to AJC today by visiting www.ajc.org donate. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.